0: Namotasa bhagavato arahatuva sammasam bhutasam Namotasa bhagavato arahatuva sammasam bhutasam Namotasa bhagavato arahatuva sammasam bhutasam Buddhaṁ dhammaṁ saṅkhaṁ namasāṁ Just a few hours ago, under and I returned from a four or five day visit down to Amarawati, and a rather a busy time, um, a lot of talking. Uh, we went down there specifically to attend meetings, formal meetings, which we had, and <laughs> meetings really, can be really hard work. And the, one of these meetings was the hardest meeting I think I've ever been to. It was just so tedious. <laughs> anyway, they were very good. It was good to go to meetings and, and <laughs> it's all very useful practice and but they were actually productive in the long run. Um, the, the, you know, people are different and we have different opinions and different ways of working and different experience, different abilities and so on. And So when you get people together, and the first two days were what we call the terrorist meetings, which is any, any monk over 10 years. I don't know whether the nuns had their own equivalent, but... They have terry meetings sometimes. But anyway, these were the terry meetings. Any monk over 10 years in our community here in Europe, and that's in Chiridamo, was visiting from New Zealand as well, so is eligible to attend these meetings, and there's anything anybody wants to bring up and talk about, basically. It's a talking shop. And and this uh, this meeting has got two days space allocated, and we have one of, the, one of those meetings a year. And But then the other meeting is what the Elders' Council meeting, which is... Um, more more of a decision-making body, and the, the, the group that Sumato, quite many years ago now delegated his authority to, and, and, and that's made up of uh, all the abbots and abbesses of the, the various monasteries in Europe, and also a second elected representative from each community. If the community is four or more in size, then they can elect somebody else to go along with the abbot to make sure that their community is being represented. This is uh, something that's evolved over quite a number of years, and actually functions very well for the most part. And, and on this occasion, also, it did function very well. But a lot of talking, and just, and, and, and there seem to be so many things to talk about. And, and you know, when your turn is with your issue, of course, you think it's terribly important. But then somebody else's issue, it doesn't seem so important. And but you got to pay attention, and so on. Well, that was just the formal meetings, but then there were the informal meetings as well. There's so much talking going on. And and nearly all of the monasteries, of course, have just been on retreat, went to retreat. Here we only had two months' retreat, and we've been, over the last month, emerged from retreat and been talking a bit. But all the other monasteries have been on retreat for three months, and so they just seem to have three months' worth of talking stored up. And it all just came out. It was a lot of talking, and I, I am quite tired. And if I don't talk for very long, I'm sure you'll forgive me. But I, I, sh- I shouldn't, and I don't intend to give a negative impression. Uh, it was a very beautiful gathering. It a, it's just these formal meetings. They, you know, they just have a certain tone to them, which is quite taxing. But what was more rewarding was the informal meetings, and just being together and, and, and spending time with fellow, committed Renunciates, it says, uh, monks and nuns, and some of us have been together for over 30 years, and and that's quite wonderful. Ajahn uh, Sumedho I've known for 30 years, and, and then a lot of the others as well, We've known each other for many many years, and and to meet together and just to check in, this kind of like you you know what it's like when you've had a, a long, rich, meaningful friendship. When you meet, there's so much shared understanding that you don't have to go into. It's just felt, and and it's, it's something is, is reaffirmed. I mean, the the, the the expression that comes to mind from the Christian tradition is reaffirmation of communion. That that there is a communion, there's a communing, there's a resonance of something shared. This is communion. That reaffirmation of that uh, is a really precious thing, a very nourishing thing. So, although I feel tired and. And it was taxing point it was, it was a really precious and wonderful thing and i, I, um, I I'm a great uh, enthusiast of these meetings you know when sometimes people get uh, quite critical or even don't turn up sometimes to some of the meetings and i I always make a point of being there because I think even if I myself may not necessarily have issues to deal with or or particularly want to be there at a particular time as a community ritual it, it is a ritual we do it each year and we just go through the same sort of thing and we do puja together as well as a community ritual there's something nourished something very important is nourished and so I have absolutely no regrets at all and I'm very grateful to the Amrawati community for all the work they have to do it's a, it's a lot of work actually to host all these all these demanding monks and nuns. Well, actually, we're not that demanding, but the people tend to think we probably are, and so they do make a big fuss over us and prepare our rooms and make nice breakfast every day and so on. Yeah, so one of the things that I've been thinking about and contemplating recently is just this, uh, just today, is how beautiful spiritual companionship is. And, and although too much talking, and heedless talking, of course, um... Is not helpful. It certainly has its place talking, and even sometimes not terribly serious talking. You know, some sometimes you know, like in Ajahn Chah's monas, you say, "Eat little, speak little, sleep little." You know, it's kind of this is a formula for you know, don't eat very much, and don't sleep very much, and don't talk very much, and, and or, uh, or Mahasi Sayadaw said, "Talking is the greatest obstruction to enlightenment." I think that's what I heard him say. reported of what he said now if you grasp that absolutely uh, and literally and take well then you can take a position against talking or you read the scriptures you can read what the Buddha said about right speech my goodness you you don't open your mouth my goodness I can't say anything (laughs) very pure and highly attained before you can say anything but those are those are guidelines those are principles those are those are principles and we use those principles uh, to direct us through life. But then, of course, what we have is the life we're living, the conditions we have to accord with the conditions we're living with. As you've heard me say many, many times before, uh, that teaching by Master Shunua, accord with conditions without compromising principles. If we grasp at the principles too tightly, we don't accord with the conditions. And Though I did notice at Amrawati, actually there was... some. Um, I like got a, a whole lot of new Anagarikas there, really serious Anagarikas, and they don't seem to want to talk to anybody. And I thought, hmm, wonder whether what's wrong? This guy's got a problem or something. But well, actually, that's when I think back, I was awfully serious in the beginning as well. I can't really remember exactly what I thought, but I mean, I, you know, I, I think back of Ajahn Chah seeing Ajahn Chah sitting there in his cootie in the evening and chewing betel nut for goodness sake! How gross! You, know, you should be more mindful give up his addictions. Mm -hmm. And then these village people would come and he would chat to them about water buffaloes and the mango crop. You know, I mean, what about Anicca Dukkha Anatta? What about the Petitja Samupada? You know, what about Abhidhamma? You know, what about real Dhamma? (laughs) You know, things that really matter. I did have that attitude at the beginning and... What happens if, uh, one of the things that happens if, if we grasp this teaching on, 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 on avoiding heedless speech uh, as a principle, we grasp it as a principle too tightly and we're not mindful of the conditions we live in, well, what we end up with is no friends. That's what happens because you don't develop friends if you don't talk. And it's really important to talk. And so, one of the things I, I noticed living with Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Tate as well, they would spend hours just in small talk. With with people, yeah, even for the monks as well. You know, the monks meet together, and and I thought monks should be really serious. And and when I'd, I'd, I sometimes I saw the senior monks, these were our teachers, and sometimes I'd go into their kutas and just see them lying down during the daytime, lying down, relaxing. And I thought that was despicable. you are supposed to be sitting upright and meditating. And, but it was a, it was too rigid a way of holding the the training. And what I've discovered in, in, in living in their company and, and in my own experience is that that friendship is an essential ingredient in, in, in practice. Uh, that All of us at times need to have people to turn to. And if we wait until we've got a problem before we start trying to develop a friendship, well, that might be a bit too late. I, mean, when I remember when I lived with Ajahn Tate, he used to say, don't wait until you've got problems in your practice until you come to t- talk to me. You know, come and tell me about the good things that are going on in practice as well. And then we, we get something going, you know? we get this connection going. And then if something difficult comes up, or if you're challenged by something, well then we've, got, we've already got something to, you know, we've got a friendship in place. And, uh, and actually also with, with uh, one of these meetings that, that we had down there, at uh, one of the meetings somebody was complaining, said, what are we meeting for, we haven't got any problems to talk about. And uh, my response to that was, well, that's great we don't have any problems, but I think we should still meet. And, you know, actually, you don't, if there's nothing to talk about, well, then we don't have to meet for two days, for goodness sake. We can, you know, go and drink tea or go for a walk or something. But it's still good to have that annual occasion to come together because if we have this event, well, then there's something, there's a structure of friendship and an association in place so that if we do have a problem, if something does come up, well then, we've got somewhere to take it. We've already got. If we wait until we've got a problem before we start to form a group or start to associate with each other, well, that's that's unfortunate. So this, uh, I think, this is uh, yeah, this is worth thinking about. I, actually, tonight you have this uh, second Sunday of the month. You have there's a discussion group here that Linda started and and comes to. And uh, I think that's a good thing. That you know the, the lay community associated with the monastery here. Come, um, well, they can come any time they want, but particularly that second Sunday of the month or or every Sunday. And if it's not Linda's group or Ajahnabhinanda who's having tea with people on on Sunday night, and just to meet regularly with friends that one feels a resonance, one feels something shared. Uh, Beyond other aspects of the culture, there's this sense of the heart dimension. The heart matters. We feel with each other, oh yeah, we share something, we hear it in our voice, we see it in our deportment and how we relate to each other, and, and then have it affirmed by the discussions that we have. So I think that's worth thinking about. And and in this context, I think maybe it was on the plane on the way back from London today, I started remembering a book that I used to have about 35 years ago now. And it was one of the first books I, I had on training awareness. And what the book was called was What to Do Until the Messiah Comes. can't remember much about the content of it now, but I remember the title. And I like that uh, very much uh, because, you know, as much as we might have faith in the coming of the messiah if you have a theistic vision of life uh, most of us probably don't but if we have a vision of liberation freedom from compulsively locking ourselves into the limitations of of being if we have faith confidence in the possibility of liberation uh, freedom from limitation that's wonderful uh, and we practice but what are we going going to do in the meanwhile you know, it's, uh, you know, in, in the beginning, some of these terribly, you know, myself included, you get terribly serious about practice and you think, I'm going to crack it in a few months. Or, that's what I thought when I became a novice monk in Thailand. I thought, mm, you know, six months should do. <laughs> then I'll disrobe and catch a train from Vladivostok over to Moscow and down through Holland and Germany and come to England and see what's happening over here and go back to New Zealand and have a nice life. And it uh, didn't work out like that. It uh, ended up in Thailand for six years or five years. Yeah. So, and then 30 years later, I'm still here. And, and as much as you might believe in enlightenment, or you want enlightenment, or you trust enlightenment, you're a, you can't make enlightenment happen. Yeah. And some great teacher or teachers uh, said, or at least Krishnamurti at some stage said, that enlightenment is an accident. Enlightenment is an accident, but meditation makes you accident prone. I like that. It's, it kind of it puts the right angle on. you know If we think we're meditating so that we're going to make ourselves get enlightened, you know we're building up a, a, we can be building up a lot of me doing this thing that's going to fix me and then I'm going to become enlightened. That's uh, a big mistake. Yeah. There needs to be effort, there needs to be practice but uh, it needs to be with the right understanding. Another great teacher, uh, that is Ajanabinando. he said that uh, you know, meditation is great, but if you're doing the whole thing, that is the Eightfold Path, well then you're really asking for it. It's more than just uh, accident prone. I mean, you're really setting yourself up for it. It's worth contemplating the attitude that we have to... Our practice and how it conditions the way we behave. In the beginning, it is true. You know, we can get all enthusiastic and try and become enlightened. But I've seen it in many people's lives. They they basically peter out after a few years. So, what are we going to do in the meanwhile? And what are we going to do until the Messiah comes? What are we going to do until whatever enlightenment is happens? Yeah. We have faith and we have confidence in it. but you know, what are we going to do? I mean, if we try too hard, you know, if we try too hard, well then it's, there is this big me, yeah. and, and you can end up very, very disappointed, uh, fall flat on your face and, and that happens and many people will give up the spiritual life give up all meditation, give up all practice. If you don't do anything, because that's another position, enlightenment's an accident, I can see the wisdom of that, so actually there's nothing I can do about it. Now it's not what the great teachers say, the great teachers say there is something you can do to make yourself accident prone, but how do we get that right kind of effort, and in the meanwhile, how do we live our lives, and Preparing ourselves, basically, is what I see most of the spiritual life is like. It's about preparing ourselves. We don't know how or when freedom, liberation is going to happen. Or even death, for that matter. We don't know how that's going to happen. Or when it's going to happen. But what we can do is prepare ourselves. Prepare ourselves. And so you have heard me say many times before how important it is to discipline our attention to really be with this moment, consciously be with this moment, to really see how and where and when, how and where <coughs> and when we get lost in these mental formations that we call the past and the future. That's preparation. That's yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people say, "Well, you know, I just don't see. You know, how can I've been practicing all these years, but I, I don't seem to be getting any closer to enlightenment? Well, what what is enlightenment? If you stop and think, well, what is enlightenment? It's an idea. Unless you're enlightened, and then you don't have a question. But for the rest of us, we have questions. What is enlightenment? Say, so, well, I don't feel like I'm getting any closer to enlightenment. Well, how do you know what you're talking about? I mean, you, it's just an idea, of enlightenment. So we've got to let go of these ideas that we have. In the beginning, the idea of enlightenment is very helpful. But as we practice, well then, our attitude towards this, or our relationship with this idea, this concept, changes. We've got to willing to release out of it. And trust. Willful effort is, is important, and it gets us so far in practice in the beginning, but then we need to be able to release out of that and just trust, you know, like... You know, Sri Ramana Maharshi, he, he said, you're on the train, you can put your bags down. You don't have to be standing on a train carrying your bags. You know, you're on the train. I mean, Once we had faith enough to take the steps to, to start on the path of practice towards freedom, towards liberation, towards selflessness, once we've had sufficient faith to be motivated to make the effort, well, then we can put our bags down. We can put all our, all our trying and all our striving and all, all our stuff, all our baggage And we can just be there, on the journey. Be there, in this moment, right here and now. And we spend all our time thinking about when's the journey going to end? When's the Messiah going to come? When am I going to get enlightened? Well, we're not actually on the journey. We're not actually doing what we're doing. And uh, what we find out, actually, is that all the great teachers encourage us to do this, to be willing to just trust in the path of practice, to be more aware, here and now, in this moment, with this experience, whatever's happening. Tedious meeting, boring subject. But whatever's happening, you know, our path of practice is not necessarily always striving to get to the goal of enlightenment. We trust the goal of enlightenment is there. We trust that enlightenment is possible, but we, we let go of the idea of it and come back to this moment. And then practice becomes much more just doing what we're doing. And so sometimes people will, you know, people criticize me because I'm not, I don't always, I'm not always sitting around talking about terribly important things. Sometimes I crack a few jokes and you know, read a few newspapers and look at the internet and check out the BBC news and so on. You say, what's that got to do with enlightenment? If you don't try enough or you don't try at all, well, that doesn't work. So what to do until the Messiah comes? Basically we've got I think we've got to find ways of living our life preparing ourselves so that we become more and more present in this moment whatever we're doing it doesn't matter how boring the meeting is or, or how sick we are or how upset we are or how confused we are you know, somebody said to me when I was down there the other day they said oh my, my mindfulness is not as strong as it used to be my mind is just not so bright it used to be so bright and and my mindfulness is really no good, and and I, I just seem to be more confused. And I suggested to her that she was confusing you know, her mindfulness with her concentration, and that uh, if you do concentrate a lot, you make your mind very one-pointed. Well, it can become quite bright and and beautiful and peaceful and lovely, but uh, that's relative. That's conditioned, conditioned on the effort that you're making and maybe the circumstances that you're in. Like being young and enthusiastic in this person's case. I think that's what it was. But then, as the years go by, and you don't have that same initial enthusiasm anymore, and things change, you become a little dull, and even confused. But the good thing was that she was able to reflect on it. She's saying, Oh, my mind is confused. All oh, right. That's fine. That's good. You're mindful of confusion. Now, if we're not mindful of confusion, how are we going to learn about confusion? If all we're busy doing is trying to be more concentrated and get back to having an ugly peaceful mind again, that's you know that's not necessarily going to teach us how to how to be free from confusion, or sadness, or sorrow, or disappointment, or worry, or anxiety, or guilt, or fear, all the other stuff that that troubles us and obstructs us. Uh, there is one line of thought that says if you just hammer away at your samadhi long enough and hard enough, you're going to break through to a reality whereby you won't have to deal with these things. Personally, I don't have any confidence in that path, not with regards to my practice anyway. If, there are some people for whom, if it's in your character to do that, then that's the right thing to do. But if it's not in your character and you keep trying to do that, well, then you're probably just going to get more frustrated. And, and, and well, but what we can do is... Uh, is be more mindful of where we're at in the moment. And what we discover, if we keep doing that, is a wonderful sense of stillness and contentment and aliveness and presence and enthusiasm in the context of confusion or disappointment or sadness or worry and so on. We don't have to keep trying to get the perfect conditions, including the perfect mind. And such a practice actually is very agile. You can take such a practice anywhere. You can go into London. You can go to the city. You can meet with your your relatives that you don't want to meet with. You can you can get sick. You can get old. And maybe, all going well, we can die, and still be mindful. Yeah. So this path of practice, as I understand it, is uh, is developing this kind of agility. And so whatever's going on if we're in large groups you know lots of people lots of talking well i find that uh, these days i can really enjoy it even though i get tired and and maybe sometimes things get said you know a bit heedless there but just the what, what one comes to appreciate well there's another dimension there the feeling of community you know, if i was holding too tight to the idea that i shouldn't talk you know, then i maybe wouldn't engage and you know, i wouldn't have friends and you have fixed positions about what practices, like you read the scriptures, and you would think that uh, all the monks did was sit samadhi all day long. Right. I do know some monks like that, and you look at them, and they're all pale and pasty and fat and flabby, and look like they're just ready for a heart attack any time. Really, seriously, I'm quite worried about some of these guys. You know, was a, this was a conversation I also had down south. A bit, a bit worried about some of these monks who don't do any exercise. Well, there's nothing in the scriptures about exercise. Well, that's probably true. At least the Tirupada scriptures, you know, the Buddha didn't teach all the monks to do salutations to the sun like I do. I mean, young monks and anagarikas come here these days, and if they don't already have a yoga or Tai Chi practice in place, well, then I take them aside and I teach them how to do the salutations to the sun and and insist that they learn how to do it in the nicest possible way, uh, of course, and threaten to throw them out or beat them up or anything but I, I do check up tomorrow because uh, it's really important to look after our bodies this is one of the things we need to do who, know, who knows how long it's going to be before the Messiah comes if you know what I mean you know, we don't know how long it's going to be before we're free and meanwhile what we've got is these bodies that uh, can easily fall apart yeah. sometimes people come into my cootie to see me, and they see I've got a rowing machine I say, well, Rowan Machine, are you doing bodybuilding or something? And uh, it's a bit late for that. <laughs> the body might like mine, there's you not know, much you can build out of it. You <laughs> might be able to rescue something, salvage something. But... <laughs> well, no, the, right, the reality is that uh, two or three years ago, uh, yeah, I... Ajahn I heard that the doctors had told me my cholesterol was, was way, way, way too high. And they wanted, they insisted that I started taking medication. And so anyway, as in Sumaito sent me a rowing machine as a birthday present. And so I very, and I told the doctor, I said, well, I'm, I don't want to take medication. He says, oh well, I think you should. I really do. And uh, I said, no, no, I want to use diet. I've looked at the, I've done some research. I want to do some diet and, um. And exercise he said i won 't make any difference. Said, oh, thank you, doctor, but uh, I was determined and stubborn and as usual, and he said well don 't be too strict with your diet and i said i 'll be as strict as I want to be and He said, "Oh, you know you, you, know, you start off strict and then you fade out, and, and you know people don 't keep it going and I do have a little ability to restrain myself and, and I can cultivate a little aditana parameter, and if I make a resolution you know some, there 's some possibility I might stick with it." And, so I did, I worked out on my rowing machine, very slowly built up, just started, five minutes a day I started off. Because when I was younger, of course, I would have started off with 45 minutes and then wrecked myself. But as you get a little older, you learn that's not the way to do things. So I very disciplined and slowly built it up to had a good routine, five days a week, and kept to my very strict diet with the generous help of the Anagarikas here. And six months later, went back and doctor had to admit that my cholesterol had come way down, almost at a perfectly acceptable level. A little bit higher, but certainly not enough to warrant taking medication. So looking after your body is important. That's something that also supports practice. Because it's not in the scriptures, it doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be doing it. At Amaravati, I noticed they have a whole gym. they got a gym at Amaravati that After one of these tedious meetings, one of the senior monks, I saw him walking off with his towel to the gym. I said, where are you going? I'm going to go to the gym, do my exercise. And, well, there are some people who frown on such things. Monks are supposed to be just sitting in samadhi and thinking that's going to resolve it. But That's taking a fixed position. That's an idea, that's an ideal, that's a concept. The reality is, if you don't look after this body, you will get you know, fat, the way people feed us. You easily get fat and flabby and fall apart, and then you could turn into a cabbage that somebody's got to spend a lot of money looking after for 20 or 30 years, and that would be really unfortunate. Despite all this effort, I might still turn into a cabbage, and, you know, that would be unfortunate too, but then I won't feel guilty about it, because I at least tried. So preparing ourselves with, with with friendship is important. preparing ourselves by looking after our bodies is important. Of course, essentially... Uh, Underlining all this, underpinning all this, is the is the commitment to the preparation of the mind. It, you can't, you know, the idea that meditation is an accident, or if you read some of these um, non-dual teachings that there are around, then you can think, well, there's nothing you can do about practice, you know, that you're, or you're enlightened already, or or some something like that. And I can read these things, and you know, I can say, yes, that's true, you know, from some perspective. But the reality is that I'm also ignorant already. You know, I might be enlightened already from one perspective, but I'm also ignorant already from another perspective. That's the reality. I still suffer. And so what the Buddha was pointing out was skillful means so that, yes, we can hear the teaching of the possibility of realizing our true being, the true nature that's inherently always there, like the true nature of water. As Ajahn Chahis always say, you know, the, the nature of this water is inherently pure. It doesn't matter what anybody puts in it. You can put all sorts of colour in it and market it and whatever. The true nature, the essential nature of this water still stays pure and clear. That's, that's its nature. The other stuff has just been added. And likewise with our hearts, with our minds, with the, with our, the core of our being, we, we can trust that essentially enlightenment is already there or liberation or freedom or from ignorance is, is already there. However, the reality is that we don't know it. We don't experience it because we're clouded. There's all sorts of other stuff been added. And so what we can do is we can work with the conditions that we've got. Work with the relationships that we've got. Be friendly. Yeah. Smile sometimes. Talk sometimes. Yeah. One of the monks said, I mean, what he this morning was saying, he says, you know, some of the people in this monastery, the only time they smile is when somebody takes a photograph of them. <laughs> <laughs> Because like, they like to think they look happy, but that's, he had observed this. He says, "No, he says, some of these people they never smile, unless somebody's taking a photograph of them." <laughs> as a char- you know, not at charity; he was different. But a lot of the monks in Thailand they're different. They're smiling all the time until you start to take a photograph of them, and they look serious because, that's, you know, Thais are, they laugh too much, and so the monks kind of take things the other way and try to cool them down. But for us, I think probably we don't laugh and smile enough, and so. Um, smiling is good and talking is good so long as it's not too much smiling you can smile too much too you can talk too much obviously you can worry about your body too much obviously and you can try too hard to to purify your mind and meditate as well however bearing in mind this this possibility of here and now judgement free body mind awareness arriving at a balanced perspective of practice which is doing what we can do in the meanwhile we're not locked into the idea that I'm going to enlighten myself, but we're also not heedlessly wasting our time and compounding further habits of ignorance. So, anyway, so I think that's enough for this evening, and uh, thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>